if you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. That's an extract from The Art of War by Sun Tzu, written in 500 BC. So this is how liberty dies. Welcome to Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause. I'm your host, Scott, and you've just heard from my co-host, Uncle Ian, back in the studio. Today's podcast features a matchup of two Chinese dictators. We've got Chairman Mao Zedong up against current Chinese leader Xi Jinping. Liberty Dies with Thunderous Applause is a history podcast obsessed with history's biggest dictators. We have created a knockout tournament to determine the single biggest dictator of all time. Each episode features a mashup of two dictators where we discuss the life and times of each leader. The loser of the battle is eliminated from the tournament. The winner remains in the contest to be crowned history's biggest dictator. Up first, we're going to look at Chairman Mao the communist revolutionary who took control of China in 1949 and left a pile of corpses in his wake. Uncle Lin, please tell us about Mao Zedong. Thank you, Scott. We remember him as Chairman Mao. He's still known in China as the Great Helmsman. Let's talk about China in the first half of the 20th century. Very unstable. In 1911... The Manchu dynasty fell after being on the throne for 250 years. It was replaced eventually by a republic led by the nationalists. However, in the late 1920s, the nationalists, now led by Chiang Kai-shek, were still fighting insurgencies in rural areas throughout China, led by local strongmen or local warlords. In 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria, which is in the northeast of China, directly above Korea on the map. Japan at that stage was already in possession of Korea and the island of Formosa, so their imperial intentions were starting to become very clear. In 1937, Japan occupied Shanghai, Beijing and Nanjing. In reality, that was the commencement of the Second World War. So the first half of the 20th century, China was a very unstable place. Let's look at where Mao fits in. Born on the 26th of December 1893 in Hunan province, which is in central China. He was the son of a former peasant who became a farmer and eventually became a prosperous grain dealer, which does sound a little bit capitalist, Scott, now that I think about it. Particularly when you use the word deal. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. The young Mao enjoyed poetry and reading, but the writing was already on the wall because His heroes when he was growing up were Washington and Napoleon. After school, he drifted. He started to train as a policeman. He started to train as a lawyer. He trained to be a teacher. He went to business school. He studied history. 
at the age of 18, he joined the army. And that was right at the time where the Manchu dynasty had fallen. At age 24, he was working at Peking University as a librarian's assistant, met up with two philosophers who would eventually help establish the Chinese Communist Party. So Mao was in the right place at the right time. He was one of the 13 founding members at the first congress in July of 1921. That became part of the Mao mythology, that he founded the party. In 1923, the nationalists and communists formed a coalition and Mao became head of propaganda. The coalition's efforts to take control over all of China against the various local warlords involved quite a substantial military effort. And newly communist Russia was providing military and training support to the coalition as a bulwark against the return of the monarchy. In 1927, the nationalists turned on the communists. There was a huge massacre in Shanghai and the communists and uh, nationalists were no longer partners. The leader of the nationalists, Chiang Kai-shek, wanted support from foreign and business interests, most of whom were based in Shanghai. And that's why he wanted to turn the communists out of Shanghai. They were seen as trying to encourage the landless peasants against the rich landlords, trying to encourage the workers against the industrialists. By 1931, the communists had established a stronghold in Jiangxi, which is in the southeast, and they set up the first Chinese Soviet. This reminds us that the word Soviet is literally a local government or council. It's not purely a word that we use in relation to Russia. During this period, in the province he controls, he abolishes the idea of equality and establishes a social hierarchy that governs the amount of food, clothes, and the living standards each person receives. Of course, Mao is at the top of the hierarchy. It's also at this time he he pulls his great trick. He promotes the idea of free speech and open debate. But it is a trap. His detractors reveal themselves to him. The leader of this group of detractors in challenging Mao's plans is a man named Wang Shi. He is arrested and tortured using Mao's favourite form of torture, the tiger bench. I'm going to describe it to you and I'm sorry. Wang Shi is placed with his back against the wall. His legs are extended out in front of him at a right angle strapped to a bench. Stacks of bricks are placed on his knees until his knees bend and eventually break. Seeing the violence and atrocities throughout the villages in Hunan province gave him the feeling he described as ecstasy. In 1934, the nationalists surrounded the province of Zhangji. 85,000 troops escape with the plan to join with their supporters in the northwest of China. During the 12 months, which is why we call it the Long March, and subsequently mythologized, Mao emphasised the importance of guerrilla tactics against their opponents while working with the rural population. Most of them saw the communists as the lesser of two evils. The Long March covered 10,000 kilometres. So it was a long march. As marches go, Scott, it's not just like walking down the street to the chemist. You're exactly right. It was a long way. The big number that gets me is that out of those 85,000 troops... 12 months later, there were 8,000 left that joined up with their fellow communists in the northwest. 
Well, he said he was a fan of Napoleon. Sounds like Napoleon's efforts in Russia. Yeah, there's also similarities with Dunkirk as well, in the sense it's a, a retreat that subsequently became almost mythologized as a, as a victory in its own right because we weren't totally wiped out. In 1937, the Japanese did a huge favour to the communists. They invaded mainland China and the nationalists and the communists agreed to fight together against the Japanese. Mao sees the Japanese invasion as an opportunity to take control of China. His propaganda paints his Red Army as the only force that can defeat the Japanese. It attracts idealistic young people, out of whom Mao builds an obedient army to make him ruler of China. During the war, so the eight years of the war, the nationalists received approximately five billion US dollars worth of planes, tanks and guns. Roosevelt sent observers to China to make sure that this material was actually used against the Japanese. But the main outcome for this material was that Chiang Kai-shek was hoarding it because he knew we would eventually want to use it against the communists. So there are three-cornered contest. In 1945, the civil war resumed. The communists had established a great reputation in rural parts of China. And in a country when only 20% of the population are urbanised, that's actually a pretty big advantage. Most people came to see Mao's Red Army as liberators from the nationalist brutality, taxes, robbery and indifference to their suffering and poverty. If they don't like taxes, they're going to hate the communists. (laughs) Yes, and if they don't like brutality and corruption and indifference to suffering, you're exactly right. Throughout China... Corrupt nationalist commanders were pocketing their company payrolls, which actually encouraged their unpaid troops to either sell their rifles to the Red Army, again, good capitalist stuff, or to change sides, start fighting for Mao. Eventually, with the support of the rural areas, Mao was able to establish supremacy, and in 1949, the nationalists fled to Taiwan. So in 1949, the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek fled to Taiwan. Firstly, for their safety. Secondly, to use it as a place from which they could plan to retake the mainland. In October, in Beijing, Mao proclaimed the People's Republic of China. In 1949, Mao declares that the people now rule China. And he makes this declaration from the emperor's palace. He even adopts some of the customs of the emperors. So he says one thing, but his actions purposely, I think, hinted another. What was that Orwell quote, Uncle Ian? Is that that being more equal than others? All animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. I think you'll find Animal Farm had only just been published a couple of years before, so whether Mao had the chance to learn from that (laughs) is perhaps another matter. In December of 1949, Mao travelled to Moscow. Stalin agreed to sign a Treaty of Mutual Assistance and to provide limited economic aid. I will say, though, that Mao and Stalin weren't close. In 1957, Mao started targeting what he called the rightists. Intellectuals, 
journalists, educators, authors, 500,000 were sent off to labour camps for re-education or rehabilitation. I should say those words in inverted commas. Also in 1957, Mao was visiting Moscow as a guest of Khrushchev at the time when Sputnik was launched, which got the attention of the world. This inspired Mao to look at China's place on the world stage. He wanted infrastructure projects, water conservation, new farming techniques, increased production of steel, establishment of genuine communes. For instance, in regard to steel production, during 1957, China produced 5.3 million tonnes. He decided that by 1962, China would be producing 100 million tonnes of steel per year. He saw that as an important symbol of the national prestige. This led to the years of the Great Leap Forward, 1958 to 1962. Farmers and villages were collectivised into communes and forced to surrender their homes, possessions, farming equipment. Sometimes they were forced to surrender their homes intact. Other times they were forced to surrender their homes piece by piece, each farmer having to give a certain number of bricks so that the local officials could build communal halls, communal kitchens, communal work areas. From the top, crazy agricultural ideas going against generations of local expertise. So close cropping, which literally means putting more seeds in less space so that they would in fact strangle each other. And deep ploughing, the, the logic was that the deeper the roots, the bigger the growth. But because the targets for deep ploughing were set in Beijing, in some parts of China, this meant to reach that depth, they'd be digging through bedrock in order to try and plant the seeds. Farmers were taken off their farms to dig ditches to reroute rivers and build poorly designed, poorly built and poorly located dams. The remaining farms had no incentive to produce because their output was collectivised. This led to hiding of grain supplies, killing and eating livestock rather than surrender it to the collective. Production plummeted. Everybody had to take part in steel production. Had to have your own backyard furnace, even if you had nothing to feed it. So in went the pots, the pans, the window frames, the tools, the doorknobs all to produce useless lumps of pig iron to meet unrealistic local and national targets. The farmers, the factory workers, were dressed in rags while China was exporting 90% of its cotton crop. Symptoms of the famine, black market, corruption, violence in food queues, children abandoned or sold or left to die. Telegraph poles became firewood. Floorboards became firewood. Fruit trees were chopped down to become firewood, even though people were starving. People ate the bark off the trees. Subsequently, those barkless trees were chopped down if ever there was an inspection team coming, rather than being visible as a symbol of what the people were going through. People ate leather from their belts. They ate straw from their roofs. They ate the poisonous cotton seeds, and sometimes they ate each other. Officials continued to falsify figures to protect themselves while insisting on continued high targets.
the consensus among Chinese and independent researchers is that the number of deaths attributable to the Great Leap Forward in that four-year period was 45 million. I, I still can't comp I still can't comprehend it. Forty five. Forty five million. Anyone who was not able to work was starved to death. Children, the elderly, pregnant women and the disabled were banned from the collective food canteen. These deaths were imposed by party policy. Regions that didn't conform to the party policy were denied food altogether. It was the worst in the newly conquered Tibet to eliminate much of the local population. One survivor of the Great Leap Forward recounts a story of a boy who was caught taking a handful of grain from the collective stores. The boy's father was forced to bury him alive. The famine was blamed on the weather and the sparrows eating the grain. So Mao decided to declare a war on the sparrows. Part of the problem with declaring a war on the sparrows is that the insects that the sparrows weren't eating, because the sparrows were being killed, the insects had a field day. They were able to eat the crops without any interference from the outlawed sparrows. Now, Scott, you mentioned Tibet. So during the 1950s, communist China had invaded Tibet in breach of a previous treaty. Over 6,000 Buddhist monasteries were destroyed during that invasion. Tibet subsequently resettled with ethnic Han Chinese in order to give them a superior population than the Tibetans. And in 1959, the Dalai Lama and his monks fled Tibet over the Himalayas. The Dalai Lama has estimated that over one million deaths in Tibet are attributable to the Chinese invasion. One of the ironies of the Great Leap Forward was that the Soviet Union, Japan, the International Red Cross, all offered assistance during the famine. China refused this assistance in order to avoid losing face. I wish, Scott, that Mao had read more about what happened in the Ukraine in the 1930s. The people who spoke up were purged and subsequently airbrushed out of photographs. So that's something he did learn from Stalin. They're good at learning the bad bits. Sadly, yes, exactly right. In 1963, Mao split with the Soviet Union and there were several border clashes because the communism was going in different directions in the two countries. should also mention Maoism mm. as a concept. And I think it largely depends on which side of the political fence you prefer. Various movements have learnt from Maoism and adopted it or adapted it for their own purposes. Ho Chi Minh met Mao in the 1930s. But Vietnam, Nepal, the Shining Path in Peru, Tanzania, Cameroon, Zimbabwe, Malaysia, Indonesia, the Red Terrorists in Italy and West Germany all claimed to be implementing the principles of Maoism. So that legacy is one that, in a lot of those countries, still lives on today. In 1964, 
quotations from Chairman Mao, published as The Little Red Book. So that's something Mao's taken out of the Dictator Pie book, is publish your own book. Not so much so you can get rich on the royalties, because I don't think Mao needed that as part of your legacy. Uncle Mao, as you know, built a fantastic cult of personality around himself. It's very difficult to go into all the various craziness that, that occurred, but I think it's best summarised by the story about the mango. Mao was given a bunch of mangoes by the Pakistani foreign minister, 40 of them. And so he thanked some workers somewhere with a gift of 40 mangoes. The worker is quoted as saying, The military representative came into our factory with the mango, raised in both hands. We discussed what to do with it, whether to split it among us and eat it, or preserve it. We finally decided to preserve it. After we made wax replicas, we gave one to each revolutionary worker. The real mango was driven by a factory worker representative through a procession of beating drums and people lining the streets from the factory to the airport. Not only was the mango a gift from the chairman, it was the chairman. The mangoes toured the country and were hoisted in a series of sacred processions. Red guards had wrecked temples and shrines, but destroying artifacts is easier than erasing religious behavior, and soon the mangoes became an object of intense devotion. And Uncle Ian, I wouldn't recommend expressing any doubts about the greatness of the mango. Dr. Hahn was a respected dentist in his community. Upon seeing the mango touring his town, Dr. Hahn remarked that it was nothing special and looked just like a sweet potato. He was arrested as a counter-revolutionary. He was tried and found guilty, paraded through the streets on the back of a truck, taken to the edge of town, and shot. Mao himself was mad. He believed having regular sex with his many concubines would keep him young and healthy. Instead, he contracted a myriad of sexually transmitted diseases, which he spread amongst his many lovers. And how about this? Having an STD in Beijing became a status symbol, as it showed your closeness to Chairman Mao. As far as status symbols go, I think I'd prefer a Rolex over an STD. I think I'd prefer a mango. (laughs) It didn't help that his physician documented that he went decades without showering or brushing his teeth. His final and favourite concubine was Chen Luan. Mao met her at 68 when she was 14. And Uncle Lee, despite his apparent love of women, Mao believed them to be a nuisance. He spoke to your old mate, Henry Kissinger, and offered to send him 10 million Chinese women to America. Kissinger said no. I don't often agree with Kissinger, but then again, maybe he might have done those 10 million a favour. In 1966, partially to finish the job of getting rid of the people who spoke up during the Great Leap Forward, Mao instigated the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. At the start of the Cultural Revolution, Mao realises it's the young that he needs. They're the most easily moulded. Both during the Civil War and the Cultural Revolution, he targets this vulnerable population and forms his own personal army called the Red Guard. He tells them 
You are the future. The old have failed. Only you can purify our society and make it perfect. It's a clever pitch exploiting the idealism and vanity of the young. Tens of thousands of students begin violently assaulting and killing their teachers. The students were then encouraged to turn on each other. Any student accused of wrongthink was abused, forced to apologise and was purged. Students were divided up into groups depending on the history of their families and their zeal for the revolution. All forms of beauty, even, were seen as bourgeois exploits. Classical music, art, literature and even gardens were considered bourgeois. The young were instructed to rip up flower beds from schools and public places. China was waging war on old ideas, old culture, old customs, old habits. Millions were sent to labour camps. Again, re-education, rehabilitation. Approximately 2 million deaths attributable to the Cultural Revolution. Mao creates the hysteria and the panic and the fear for one of his most sinister acts. His second-in-command, a crucial figure in the revolution, Lin Bao, gave a speech criticising the Great Leap Forward. From that point on, Mao planned a slow-motion assassination of his 2IC. Lin Bao is arrested, abused, denied medicine and tortured to death over the course of a year. Mao demands his death be filmed so he can watch it at his leisure. As Mao says, Communism is not love. Communism is a hammer which we use to crush the enemy. It was plainly obvious by the end of the 1960s, especially as the Vietnam War was coming to an end, that China and the Soviet Union were heading in different directions. The West was keen to isolate the Soviet Union and diplomatic overtures began towards China. Given the size of the population, there were obviously going to be significant trade opportunities as well. Kissinger, as Nixon's national security advisor, went to China to prepare for President Nixon's visit, which occurred in February 1972. Now, this was a pretty brave move by Nixon. He was a Republican, he'd been vice president during the Korean War, and he was running for re-election later that year. By the way, that's the same election which gave us Watergate. In October 1971, the United Nations recognised the communist government, who thus inherited the spot hitherto occupied by the nationalists, still on Taiwan, still claiming to be the rightful Chinese government. So for all of those 22 years, Taiwan, or the nationalist government of Chiang Kai-shek in Taiwan, held a seat not only in the UN but on the Security Council. This is despite the fact they haven't set foot in China in, what, 30 years? Uh, in 22 years. So by the early 70s, the world started to recognise that reality. On the 9th of September 1976, having suffered Parkinson's disease, Mao died at the age of 82. So Mao's immediate legacy. He wanted to be seen as the genial leader who'd founded the party defeated the Japanese, won the Civil War, provided the party's philosophy, stood up to Stalin. He wore the same clothes as everybody else. In reality, on the death of Mao, there was a power vacuum. There was no succession planning. And we've seen how dangerous it was to be next in line to Mao. 
The new leader, Hua Guofeng, arrested the Gang of Four. They were blamed for the Cultural Revolution. Now, that Gang of Four included Mao's fourth and final wife. She had to take the blame for the Cultural Revolution. Chaos reigned in China until Deng Xiaoping took control in the late 1970s. If you want to learn more about Deng Xiaoping, then do yourself a favour, go back to our third episode where we cover him in detail. At the time of the death of Mao, did he leave China a better place? I found one improvement, Scott, and we talk a lot about education when we talk about dictators. Literacy rates in China. Oh, of course. It's always the literacy rates. You and I only had to learn 26 letters. Oh, fair enough. In China, literacy is defined, if you're rural, by being able to recognise and use 1,500 characters. The literacy rate in 1949 was 20%. It had barely improved since 1900. By 1982, the literacy rate had grown to 65%. However, I think I'd rather look at what the Washington Post said. Very simply, referred to the Great Leap Forward as, and I quote, the biggest mass murder in the history of the world. Let's move on to our next dictator, President Xi Jinping, the current president of China. What's he up to? Xi Jinping was born on the 15th of June 1953 in Shanxi Province, China. His father, Xi Zhongjun, served as Deputy Prime Minister of China. He was an early comrade-in-arms of Mao Zedong, but fell out of favour with his party and the government. Mao's famous struggle sessions took place at Xi's school. Teenage Xi Jinping was hauled in front of a crowd who was shouting, Down with Xi Jinping. His own mother shouted along with the crowd. Xi later escaped his school and went home to his mother, who was so afraid of government spies, she refused to feed him and reported his escape. As a result of his father's purge from the party, Xi Jinping's luxurious childhood amongst the ruling elite in Beijing was over. Xi was sent to the countryside in 1969 where he worked for six years as a manual labourer on an agricultural commune. These six years built the myth of Xi Jinping. The myth that he lived in a cave while covered in lice with very little food. Xi recounts that he would walk five kilometres on a mountain road carrying 100 kilos of wheat without switching shoulders. Without switching shoulders, Uncle Ian. Just in case you weren't impressed already. I I promise you, I'm impressed. When Mao died, Xi was reunited with his family. In 1974, he became an official party member. He graduated university and worked his way through various communist party jobs as secretary, mayor and governor. Unlike his father, Xi built a reputation for following the official party line without deviation. Clever boy. He had learned his lesson. In 2007, he was selected as one of the nine members of the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, Politburo, the highest ruling body in China. 
Xi's main rival for the top job was Bo Lai, a charismatic and popular reformer. But Bo, like the adversaries of all aspiring dictators, would encounter a stretch of bad luck. In 2011, Bo's associate, British businessman Neil Haywood, was found dead in China. Bo's top lieutenant and police chief, Wang Lijung, sought asylum at the American consulate. He claimed to have information implicating Bo and his wife in the murder of the British businessman. Bo's wife was found guilty of the murder. Bo lost his seat on the Politburo and was expelled from the party. He was subsequently trialled and found guilty of corruption, stripped of all his assets and sentenced to life imprisonment. With his primary rival no longer a threat, Xi became China's heir apparent. But this period would produce the greatest mystery surrounding Xi's life. In September 2012, Xi Jinping, China's most watched public official, disappeared for two weeks. Scheduled meetings with foreign diplomats, such as Hillary Clinton, were cancelled. Speculation became rampant, and discussion of his absence was removed by censors on Chinese social media. The suggestions were that he was sick, or busy cleaning up the Boji Lai affair, or recovering from an assassination attempt, or that he was injured when a Communist Party meeting turned violent and he was hit on the back with a chair. Was that a tables, letters, chair match? <laughs> Uncle Ian, are we likely to see G at WrestleMania 38? Given that, as I understand it, Donald Trump is in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, I would not be the least surprised. But I don't really want to see either of in wrestling trunks. Yeah, and the boots. It's the boots that make it more homosexual, I think. <laughs> the Speedos and the leather boots. Never a good look. I'm not sure that in a tag team match I'd trust either of them. No, that wouldn't be my first pick. I'd be going with Shawn Michaels or Triple H. So, in 2012, Xi returned from his absence without explanation as chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's now November 2012 and Xi is General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. He immediately broke with tradition and reduced the number of Politburo members from 9 to 7 and replaced all but one of the standing members. Xi Jinping has abolished limits on the number of terms he can serve as president. He's expected to remain president for life. Xi adopts the policies of the man that tortured his family. He abolishes term limits and centralises power around himself. The core of the party is made up of the children of famous families of the revolution. They have all remained loyal to Xi. The Chinese Communist Party is still the centre of Chinese life. All community organisations, sports clubs and businesses, even foreign businesses, are affiliated with and contain branches of the Chinese Communist Party. If you want to be successful in business, you have to be a party member. So let's talk about the surveillance state and the system of social credit. China is the most closely monitored place in the world for what you say and who you meet. 
It has the largest recorded number of imprisoned journalists and cyber dissidents in the world. Their online censorship is the most comprehensive in the world. In reality, China does not have the internet, it has an intranet. Our old friend Deng Xiaoping was fond of saying, if you open a window for fresh air, you have to expect some flies to blow in. They have their own social media platforms which must comply with government diktats. 16% of posts are deleted by censors. Of course, the production of all television, radio, journalism and books are subject to government approval. Again, Winnie the Pooh is banned in China because of jokes made comparing the character to the similarly portly Xi Jinping. China doesn't just censor its own country's media. Its economic might has meant Xi can shape Hollywood films. For example, in the Marvel film Doctor Strange, it was supposed to include a Tibetan monk character that features in the comic books. Tibet, of course, was colonised by the Chinese in the 50s, and they don't appreciate any depictions of Tibet as a distinct culture, particularly one reminiscent of the Tibetan independence leader, the Dalai Lama. In order for the movie to get through the Chinese censors, the Tibetan monk character was replaced by a Celtic monk. In the Hollywood film Looper, about a time traveller, Chinese investment pushed a pro-Chinese script, including the line, I'm from the future, you should go to China. In the upcoming Top Gun movie, the Taiwanese flag was removed from Tom Cruise's jacket. I could keep going, but you get the idea. China's social credit system is creating a master database tracking every purchase and every correspondence to give a point score to each citizen. Those with a low amount of points will face severe restrictions on liberty and business. It is effectively a fully integrated, high-tech version of the social and political pressures that Mao created in China. Chinese children as young as 10 will soon be required to take lessons in Xi Jinping thought. Before they reach their teenage years, pupils will be expected to learn stories about the Chinese leader's life and to understand that Grandpa Xi Jinping has always cared for us. Xi's also stepped up the One China policy. Uncle Ian, tell us about Taiwan. So Scott, you recall that in 1949, the nationalist government led by Chiang Kai-shek fled to the offshore island of Taiwan, and Taiwan today remains a democratically ruled country. In terms of how far away from China Taiwan actually is, the distance from the mainland is 130 kilometres. Very close. Chinese communist leadership today wants to replicate the mythical Chinese empire from centuries ago. All around China is territory that the Chinese are keen to annex or have already annexed. The lease for Hong Kong ended in 1997. In 1999, they reclaimed Macau from Portuguese control. We've heard about the invasion of Tibet in the 1950s. Back in 1962, there was a war between India and China over disputed territory. And even in recent weeks, reports continue of border skirmishes in the Himalayas with India. And then there's the Spratly Islands in the South China Sea as to who owns those. 
It also doesn't help that the Chinese keep building islands in the South China Sea and then saying that because we have islands there, then the whole sea belongs to us. That's right, miles from any mainland. So in 1996, China massed troops and ships as if they were planning an invasion of Taiwan. Now, the US responded with a massive naval presence and the Chinese backed down. The theory seems to be they were curious to find out what the US response would be if they looked like they were planning to invade, and they certainly found out. Now, Xi Jinping talks about one China. He talks about reunify. It's worth remembering, though, that Taiwan has never been part of communist China. In fact, from the 1890s right through to 1945, Taiwan was occupied by Japan. The Chinese Communist Party sees reintegrating all of these territories, including Taiwan, as an important symbol of its continued status on the world stage. The year on the horizon is 2049. Xi has publicly stated he would see it perfect to reunify Taiwan with the mainland in time for the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic. That's terrifying. But the scandal that has truly alerted the world to the of China is the CCP's treatment of the Uyghur people. The Uyghur Muslims are the native people of Xinjiang province in far western China. The Uyghurs are Turkic, meaning they are more like the neighbouring people of Kazakhstan than the Chinese, the Han Chinese. Xinjiang province, where they lived, was conquered by the Chinese Communist Party in 1949, who have slowly colonised the region. Xinjiang literally means New Frontier. It reminds me of Provence, <laughs> named by the Romans when they got to southern France. Many Uyghurs would prefer to call the area East Turkestan. So what is Xi Jinping doing to the Uyghurs? Forced sterilisation, forced abortion, and the separation of children from their families. 80% of IUD birth control implants in all of China, are performed in Xinjiang province, despite being less than 2% of the Chinese population. The adults are shuttled into forced labour factories or picking cotton. Slave labour picking cotton. How depressingly unoriginal. The area grows 20% of the world's cotton. H&M, Nike and Adidas have announced it will no longer source the cotton from the region. The CCP was displeased. The smartphone Shopping apps of those three companies disappeared from Chinese app stores. Fila, Asics, and Hugo Boss instead publicly announced it will continue using Xinjiang slave labor. Uncle Ian, how shocked are you that Hugo Boss, the company that supplied uniforms to the Nazis, <laughs> are okay with a little slave labor? It does show that capitalism and the willingness to do business are alive and well in China today. It also reminds me, Scott, of my fascination that when Hong Kong was handed back to China in 1997, Beijing didn't appoint a local governor or a local supervisor to be the government representative in Hong Kong. They appointed a chief executive. 
They saw Hong Kong as a gigantic business. That's exactly right. Now, part of this was you've mentioned some foreign companies there that still want to do business in China. And of course, we've got lots of Chinese companies that are seen as stooges of the Chinese government in the world, Huawei being the obvious example, but there's plenty of others. Well, they say that China's a capitalist country, but the whole country runs like the family business of the Chinese Communist Party. Back to the Uyghurs. Unfortunately, there's more to that story. Over a million people each year are put on trains to re-education camps to override their political thinking, their identities, and their religious beliefs. They are forced to sing hymns praising the Chinese Communist Party and write self-criticism essays. Uyghur religious sites and cemeteries have been demolished. In 2019, 22 countries expressed concern over the targeting of the Uyghurs. Suspiciously, no Muslim country has done so. Many Uyghurs have fled to the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia and other Arab nations. However, these countries are now detaining arrivals and sending them back to China. These countries fear economic reprisal from the economic powerhouse. In January 2021, the British government announced the treatment of the Uyghurs amounts to torture. And then the big one came, the G word. This year, the US government declared the demolition of the Uyghur people and culture as genocide. All right. Now you've probably heard of the coronavirus. <laughs> if you haven't, well, congratulations. COVID appeared in Wuhan in late 2019. Dr. Li Wang Liang discovered the virus and warned his colleagues about a new disease that looked like SARS. He was told by police to stop making false comments. He was forced to sign a statement denouncing his warning as an unfounded illegal rumour. With the Chinese government focused on shutting down all discussions of a new virus, the virus spread completely unobstructed, and eventually the government had to admit that Dr. Lee was right. Dr. Lee was later quoted criticising the Chinese government, saying a healthy society should have not just one voice. Soon after, Wuhan Central Hospital announced that Dr. Lee had died of the disease that he discovered. Now, the good people who listen to this show can make up their own mind about what happened here, but I will point out that Dr. Lee was a healthy 34-year-old, about 40 years younger than the average coronavirus victim. Also, the Chinese Chinese state-run media and Communist Party's official newspaper announced that Dr. Lee had died the day before he actually died. Uncle Ian, who was that Pope that died a week into the job and the ambulance was somehow called before his body was discovered? <laughs> who was that? It was it John Paul I? Who I think he got the job on Monday and he said he was anti-pedophilia on Tuesday and he died on Wednesday and the ambulance was called sometime between. Yeah, so it was back in 1978, year of the three Popes. And you're right, the interval between the two papal elections, even from the other side of the world, did seem remarkably short. Mind you, at that stage, I hadn't learnt about Pope Alexander VI. (laughs) Maybe if I had, it wouldn't have surprised me to anything that happens in the Vatican. Yeah, they hadn't even cleaned out the smoke out of the chimney and they were getting it going again. The Chinese handling of the coronavirus mirrors the Soviet handling of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. 
deny the truth to save face and risk millions of people die. The origins of the coronavirus are unclear. Uh, When the Australian government requested for an independent investigation into the virus, Xi Jinping responded by banning Australian exports of wine, meat and coal. The joke is on him, because with one barbecue, the good people of Australia can get through more wine, beef and coal than you could possibly imagine. Especially now that we're out of lockdown, Scott. And communist China continues to display its capitalist credentials. Uncle Ian, tell us about the Belt and Road Initiative. In 2013, China announced a wide-ranging plan to establish maritime trade routes and worldwide investment in infrastructure projects, pipelines, ports, railways, roads. We're talking $1.5 trillion. And so far, China has reached agreements with 125 different countries to finance infrastructure. Why are they doing this? Primarily... They want to try and make use of all of the excess manufacturing capacity within China. Part of this is about getting Chinese produce out in the world. So this is about trade routes. This is also about boosting production in the Western provinces. Classic example is in Western China, trying to get to the South China Sea and hence the Pacific Ocean is a very long way. But if you're in Western China and you make an agreement with Pakistan to build a railway line down towards the Indian Ocean, it's actually much quicker to get your goods to port. So those textiles we were just hearing about that are being manufactured in Xinjiang province, China wants to export them to the world through Pakistan much quicker and they'll pay for the railway lines they'll pay for the ports one of the key elements of the Belt and Road Initiative is a new term Scott I don't think we've heard this on our podcast before it's the potential for debt trap diplomacy let me give you an example neighbouring Tajikistan which was one of the Central Asian Republics signed a contract with China to develop some infrastructure. They struggled to meet the repayments. The Chinese government made a deal with the Tajikistan government that they would write off the debt, but that Tajikistan had to surrender some territory. So China literally repossessed what had previously been Tajik land. Suddenly they moved all the border signs so that that land actually became part of communist China. This concept of debt trap diplomacy doesn't only affect neighbouring states. China is very active in the Pacific, supporting countries with everything from infrastructure money to vaccine supplies. And the perception is that they're doing that in order to try and politically influence those countries in the Pacific, possibly buying their votes at the United Nations, for example. Good people of Vanuatu were looking at at China for some infrastructure. 
And then the Australian government decided to throw a bit of money and love at Vanuatu to stop that happening because, as you say, if Vanuatu missed a payment, they'd probably owe the Chinese a few islands. Or suddenly there's a Chinese naval base. <laughs> God, it's not what we want. <laughs> Outside Luganville. In March 2014, Xi Jinping visited Paris to celebrate 50 years of diplomatic relations. During a speech on that trip, he said, and I quote, Napoleon Bonaparte once said that China is a sleeping lion and when China wakes up, the world will shake. In fact, said Xi to the French president, the lion of China has awoken, but what the world sees now is a peaceful, amiable, civilised lion. So it's time to make a decision. Only one of these dictators can go through the next round and remain in the running to be crowned history's biggest dictator. I'm not a fan of either of them, Scott. Let me make that perfectly clear. But I hope that in saying that, Xi Jinping's people aren't listening to this podcast. Yes, I don't think we've endeared ourselves to the Chinese president. The situation in Zhangjiang with the Uyghurs is horrific and, and disgusting, but... As bad as that is, it does not compare to the suffering of the Chinese under Mao. I mean, this this podcast episode can only end in one way. Scott, you're right. Mao, intentionally or otherwise, demonstrates so many of the characteristics that depress us time and time again. The cult of personality, all the posters around publishing his own book, I think at one stage there were enough copies of the thoughts of Chairman Mao were printed for every Chinese person to own three copies. Rewrote history to emphasise his own role from the founding of the party through the Long March, through the Civil War, the airbrushing of rivals out of history. We haven't even talked about all his private palaces as well. Pretty much the only thing he's not doing is the uniform and medals thing. He does demonstrate all of those characteristics of dictatorship and it's impossible to overlook the famine. Yeah, this podcast can only end one way. Congratulations to Chairman Mao. You will remain in the contest to be crowned history's biggest dictator. Xi Jinping is eliminated from the tournament. Hopefully that's the last we hear of him. So next episode, Scott, we're going to New Territory. Yes, we're going to India. Very good. All right. Well, Uncle Ian, lovely speaking with you. I'll see you in South Asia next episode. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Uncle Ian. Regular listeners will recall that after the 10th episode, we put in a retrospective mm-hmm. um, and we plan to do the same thing after our 20th episode as well. Our 20th episode is the next one up. So after that will be our retrospective. So if you've got some questions or comments that you'd like to share with us and maybe even have us read out on air, by all means, please send us an email. Liberty Dies Podcast at gmail.com.